Good afternoon slash evening. Welcome to the Calories and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China Africa podcast. I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, and I am still working on the whole finding a co-host thing, unfortunately. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duro, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment and development field in Africa that I know of. Today we are continuing our month-long look at China-Zambia relations, and we have two very special guests to help us out. One is a returning guest, Ms. Solange Gorshatiyad, a PhD candidate at the Institut d'Etudes Politiques de Paris, 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 whatever, and an associate of the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology in Halle-Salle, Germany. She specializes on local politics and everyday state formation in contemporary rural China and among the nascent um, Chinese community in Zambia. You know her from her work on France 24, BBC, Al Jazeera, or as a production assistant on the film When China Met Africa. Thankfully, her previous experiences with our pod was not entirely awful and she's returning with us. We also have Mr. Kennedy Gondway, a Zambian journalist. Solange Kennedy, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Thank you very much. Kennedy, we are going to start with you. Could you tell us what did President Sata mean to the people of Zambia? What kind of politician was he? And can you outline the current state of Zambian politics? Okay, I'll start with the second uh, question. President Sata um, meant a lot to the Zambians. I mean, he's a man who has been involved with or was involved with uh, Zambian politics from the time that uh, Zambia got independence about uh, 50 years ago. He rose through the ranks. He's a man who had uh, very humble beginnings, okay? He started with the then uh, opposition or founding a party, UNIP, and then at some point he went to, uh, before he joined UNIP, actually went to England where he worked as a, a cleaner at one of the railway stations, and then he came back to Zambia. He worked as a, a police officer and then went into politics full-time. So he's at very humble beginnings as a politician. He's a person that resonated very well with the people, the common man. He had very uh, modest and uh, uh, humble education. But later on, he built his political career to a point where he became president. So he meant a lot to Zambians uh, in general, especially the last 10, 15 years when he founded the Patriotic Front. I mean, the Patriotic Front was an offshoot or a breakaway somehow from the former ruling party, the MMD. So when Michael Sata, uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, around 2000, 2001, decided to form the Patriotic Front, a lot of people thought that maybe there's something that had gone wrong with him. But over <laughs> a period, he built his political career and he became a very formidable opposition political party leader. So in him being elected president of Zambia some three years ago, it was because he mainly spoke what people wanted to hear. He was a populist. Whether those solutions that he uh, offered or the criticism that he offered the government that uh, he was criticizing then were uh, uh, practical in something that will uh, remain to be seen or never be seen now that he's gone. But he spoke with the masses. He endeared himself very well with the masses. And him going today, or him passing on some two, three weeks ago, I think a lot of people are mourning, especially the kind of audiences that he appealed to. Could you talk to us more about the kind of audience he appealed to? I, what What is the average Zambian voter, if if there is such a thing as an average Zambian voter, what speaks to them? 
Okay, what speaks to them? One thing that you have to, I think, bear in mind is that uh, the majority of the Zambians are poor. They live below the poverty datum line, and uh, most of them are illiterate. Most of them don't care about macro or microeconomics. What they want is issues to do with food directly, issues to do with unemployment, issues to do with paying school fees for their children. So if a politician stands up like Michael Sata did and tells them that I'm going to put more money in your pockets, you'll probably not even go into questioning how that will be done. That immediately excites them. When he tells them I'll lower uh, taxes uh, like he did again, they'll probably get excited like they did and uh, obviously give him uh, the, the, the vote that he so much cared for and deserved. But most importantly, he brought himself to the level of the common man on the street. He's a kind of a person who would go into a village that did not have electricity, go into a village that has poor road network, sit with the people and talk to them, eat with them, eat fritters with them, eat traditional foodstuffs with them, go to a funeral that uh, he doesn't even know the person who died and mourn with those people. So he reduced himself to the level of the poorest of the poor and spoke the language of that person. And in the Zambian political context, the majority of the people that are going to vote are not university or college students. It's people that perhaps have never been to school. It's people that are unemployed. It's people that live below the poverty data line. And those are the people that Michael Sata appealed to because they are in the majority. And those are the people that are mourning him the most. Wow. Th thank you so much for, for clarifying that. Could you outline the current state of Zambian politics? Does does Sata's passing leave a, a massive hole in terms of um, populist leadership or people that uh, a leader that the common people can relate to? Is somebody filling that hole or, or is the is the party, the, the PUF, able to fill that hole without Sata? Uh, I think like uh, in any, most of the African countries, the biggest problem that uh, our leaders have got is that uh, they build parties around themselves. And as such, they don't put in place a proper succession plan. When you look at Zimbabwe, for instance, uh, uh, Zambia's neighboring country, it's the same thing. Zambia here, it's the same thing. Even the former ruling party of Zambia, unit, it was the same thing. One person built, established the party. Because of the lack of mechanisms or roadmaps in terms of succession, the moment those people left office or they died, the party goes uh, with them. It's pretty much the same scenario with Michael Sata. I mean, for a very long time, ordinary Zambians saw that the man was not up to scratch with his health. But the official line that was told by the ruling party now, PF, which he himself founded, is that the person was enjoying the best of his health. But we could see that his health was deteriorating. And that took away people's eyes from the ball. They never concentrated on who was going to replace Michael Sata. And as a result of that, because he himself, unfortunately, did not play a big part or bigger role before uh, he died in terms of choosing a successor or pointing people in the direction of his successor. We've got so many people within the ruling party jostling for power. If I do a count right now, there are more than five people jostling for, uh, for power. There's a former justice minister, we are told, Winter Kavimba, who Michael Sata fired later on, who wants to be president. There's his son, Mlenga Sata, who we are told wants to be president. There's the current general secretary of the ruling party, who we are told wants to be president. The former defense minister, we are told the same thing. So it's more than five, okay? And that creates uh, 
uh, an atmosphere for anarchy within the ruling party, if I were to put it that way. Because everyone wants to be president. And some of these people that are supporting these individuals are not a people or a group of people that you can put on a round table to discuss and agree on who they are going to back. They are so stuck with their candidates that if we're not careful, the ruling party, the patriotic front, may actually disintegrate because people are not singing from the same hymn sheet, if I were to put it that way. And that greatly has been as a result of the patriotic front, like many other parties in Africa, not having a proper succession plan. So right now, the political situation is so bad that you cannot really predict uh, who in the ruling party is going to succeed uh, Mr. Michael Sataole, president. Uh, people, as of today, seem to be swaying or going in the direction of the Secretary General of the ruling party, Edgar Lungu, who, as the late president, left as acting president. That's the direction that it is going. But before then, before we know who the patriotic front are going to choose as their presidential candidate, they have to go through an intra-party selection process, through a convention or through the key decision-making organ of the ruling party. That's when they're going to select one person. So you can have 10, 20 people today aspiring to be president. At the end of the day, only <laughs> one person is going to be chosen. And depending on who is chosen and how the disillusioned losers are going to come out, that might uh, either strengthen the ruling party or completely destroy it. So to answer your question, I've taken a little bit of time to give you the context and the dynamics at play. It's very difficult to predict who Zambia's uh, next president is going to be. And the scenario is also the same in the opposition political parties. Each one of them, each leader of the opposition political party, wants to be president. There doesn't seem to be uh, any mechanism or any efforts uh, to work together. Maybe those efforts are being there, but it appears every one of them wants to be president, and every one of them is too stubborn for the other, to give in <laughs> for the other, uh, for them to, to be president. So it creates uh, an atmosphere of uncertainty, and until this is resolved, I see it continuing. But hey, Zambians have always been known to be very peaceful people. They can quarrel in the newspapers. If you came to Zambia today, so the name calling, read about the name calling, even on online media, I think this country is at war, but not physically. So the quarrels will go on and on and on after the elections. Who know who our president is going to be? Thank you so much. And, and part of the reason I wanted to have you on was, was to let people ignorant of Zambian politics, and basically myself, because I'm super ignorant of Zambian politics, um, to, to learn more about the, the situation. You're talking about... Um, quarreling and rhetoric and i'm going to smoothly segue really quickly to president sata's relationship with china which is something that a lot of people know about and something that this pod hopes to explore how much of president sata's anti-china rhetoric was real for lack of a better term and is that just an, a, a part of zambian politics where the rhetoric is going to be heated um, like I said earlier, President Sata was such a shrewd politician that if he met you today and one of your interests was to, uh, 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 for him maybe to get funding or to endear himself with you, one of your interests was to have uh, political change or campaign for gay rights, for lack of a better example. <laughs> he would talk to you in that manner for you to love him, all right? Mm. If 
around the continent, Africa, or in Zambia at any particular moment, there was a drive, an anti-China drive, and the masses were moving with that drive. He would then find a way of uh, endearing himself with those people. What am I trying to say? There was a time in Africa where the anti-China campaign was really strong. There was a time that it's believed one of the founders of the patriotic front then when they were still in the opposition was Taiwan. And Taiwan and China relations are well known in terms of uh, 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 the, the history. So at that moment, he then endeared himself with the Taiwanese because he did not want the Chinese. Whether he meant it or not is something that uh, I think later on we came to see. But what happened is after standing on an anti-China hill for a long time, and winning the hearts of the West for whatever interest they've got <laughs> for or against China. He spoke their language, and they thought, oh, here is a person who is with us in terms of our policy towards China in Africa. Some of the uh, um, messages that he put across were very legitimate. Some of them were highly illegitimate. Fast forward to uh, 2011 election, he gets elected. The first group of people, investors, foreign investors, that he invites to State House were the Chinese. <laughs> they had lunch together. And from there on, we never heard the Michael Sata, who was so against the Chinese when he was in the opposition. If I remember correctly, his words were, China are our all-weather friends. And from that time onwards, the Chinese, I think, felt very welcome in Zambia or they felt they were at peace to continue with their various uh, interests, business interests in Zambia. So whether he really meant what he said at any particular moment is never here nor there. But one thing for sure is that he never chased the Chinese. He embraced them. And indeed, they had a big role to play in the country's economy. They still continue to do their activities in road construction, infrastructure, uh, development, and farming, and so many other areas. The patriotic front, after getting or assuming office, never antagonized with the Chinese. So that's the kind of a person that we are talking about. At one point, you would say this, and you would really think, oh, yeah, we've got a person who's going to deal with these people. But at another point, maybe after realization, he completely changes, and he completely changed uh, towards the Chinese. Whether that was good or bad, I'll never know. But he changed position. Kennedy, thank you so much for that really fascinating explanation. I know you have to go, so unfortunately, Kennedy cannot be here maybe, with us. Maybe before I go, I can, uh, I can offer you some minutes. I've just remembered something. Yes. One of the things that happened with uh, President Sata is that when he was in the opposition, as regards the Chinese, he was very critical of them. All right? He gets power, and I told you what happened, him inviting them to state house and not antagonizing them. Mm. On a personal note, on a personal level, one of his daughters, if not nieces, actually got married to a Chinese. <laughs> All right. So at a presidential level, he was the president who had obviously to delicately handle the Zambia-China relations. On a personal level, he had one of his own family members marrying a Chinese man and having a Chinese grandchild. So I hope that explains or gives, gives you context, both at a personal and a presidential level. 
that um, gives a lot of context. That, uh, constructed the, the people that constructed his uh, what do you call it? tombstone when I was watching on TV. It's a Chinese. Wow. Wow. Thank you, thank you so much for that real insider knowledge of of the China Zambia relationship and, and, and Michael Sata's own, um, his own uh, political legacy. That was so great. I really appreciate it, Kennedy. Okay, okay. All right, and you have a you have a good evening. Okay. All right. Okay. You too. All right. Bye bye. Solange, are you still there? Yep. We are going to continue. Unfortunately, um, Kennedy. Um, cannot finish out the rest of the pod, but we have Miss Salon Shatiyard on, on the pod, and she was actually the one who, who thankfully put me in touch with Kennedy. So every great thing that you heard Kennedy say was all thanks to Solange. Solange, what are you up to right now? I've just finished my dinner. <laughs> I hope you didn't rush to finish because of me. No, 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 no. Okay, fan- well fantastic. And so, yeah, if, if you didn't know, Solange is one of the world's foremost experts on China-Zambia relations. And I'm not kidding about that. I was actually um, uh, floating your name to people because I was like, oh, I'm going to have a pod with Solange. Do you want to come? And people were like, no, no, no. If Solange is going to be there, there's no reason for me to be there because she has it all covered. Um, so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> So yeah, <laughs> I want to ask, did, once Sata got elected and, 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 and changed how he approached the Chinese, how did Zambian politicians, well, did, did Zambian politicians see a shift in his policies? And what did different Zambian populations think about that shift as well? I mean, if, if Sata was the the populist leader, the man of the people, well, if he got elected as a man of the people and one of his platforms was anti-Chinese sentiment, what does that mean when he no longer has that anti-Chinese sentiment? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I think several things. It's important to distinguish um, the rhetorics of a political campaign which is what Sata really is remembered for, at least outside of Zambia, and the actual roadmap um, for during his mandate. That would be the five-year rule of a presidency. And I think those two things uh, were quite distinct. There was quite a big difference between a lot of the slogans um, and the, the campaign slogans, especially, that were used by uh, top PF leaders. Um, and the actual plan that they had uh, to consolidate power, to replace an existing party that was governing the country for over two decades, and to redirect the country and put it on a new path of development. I think they had a general idea, uh, uh, left-leaning principles, a uh, pro-poor um, agenda, as Kennedy was mentioning, um, really speaking to the average Zambian and promising them more money in their pocket, less unemployment, more jobs. Um, but again, a lot of these things were cold uh, heart, as we say in Chinese. Um, <laughs> uh, just a, a lot of it was discourse and whether he and his party managed to uh, you know, lay, the, lay the conditions to deliver those results 
um, perhaps not not yet. I, I think he probably fell short of that. Uh, but it's an incredibly, of course, it's a very challenging task. And um, I think the PF is still roughly, uh, let's say, on track or, or sticking with that pro-poor agenda. Um, but I think they still have a lot of road ahead of them. And um, once he came into power, you know, vis-a-vis his relationship with the Chinese, he realized that, of course, I mean, he knew this all along. Um, he's a very shrewd politician, as Kennedy mentioned. Um, you know, he wanted to use whichever asset, whichever opportunity, whichever potential ally was around him and available um, to his advantage. And he realized that if he played and and with the Chinese correctly, um, he could use them and they could be very beneficial for him and his party and uh, his agenda. So bearing in mind that he held um, a lot of public opinion through the media, it's really important to understand the vehicles of power, uh, the instruments of power that he used um, in order to, to rise through the ranks and to appeal to the people. Um, he was very clever in, 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 in identifying what those channels, those vehicles were, media being, of course, central to that, um, like in every country and every, every liberal democracy, of course. Uh, and he used it, he continued to use it to his advantage once he became president. So he could basically tune the people in and out of, um, you know, subjects or hot topics when he wanted to. So if he wanted to turn up the volume on, you know, the China bashing, he would do that. And if he wanted to turn down the volume and then focus more on jobs or focus more on something else, he could do that too. So, again, it's more about um, that as a politician, the charismatic leader who had the nation, in a way, gripped under his magic. Um, and he, sw- he swung the politician, really, in the direction that, uh, sorry, the people uh, in the direction that he wanted. And he was very astute at doing that. So I think that wasn't really too difficult in terms of um, um, moving people away from the China bashing to more concrete issues. And I think there were another, a very important thing to remember is that there were huge expectations um, by the Zambian people when the PF were elected, really big uh, expectations for change. Um, This is for uh, many different reasons. But part of that was, despite the, the, the promising growth rate that Zambia has experienced in the, in, in, in the last decade, you do have serious um, macro and microeconomic restructuring taking place in the country. So the consequences of the neoliberal say, reform agenda that swept across Zambia as much of Africa and the developing world throughout the 90s. And there's still a lot of adjustments uh, to make at the level of the market, at the level of the national economy. And so many people who are unemployed, who don't have access to basic public services, basic health care, basic education, all that was really coming to um, coming to a point where people were just fed up. Students were fed up that there was no more public funds for education, hospitals didn't have medicine. I mean, these are kind of problems that I think most African nations face. Um, and SATA raised, represented uh, a lot of the expectations of people that suddenly all those problems would go away without really sort of ever considering how that would happen. Um, he also, and as I said again, played on words and slogans, and his big slogans was, you know, change within 90 days. 
um, and that was this 90-day deadline was really played across the country in these villages um, that I managed to go to. I followed uh, Michael Satter on his campaign. I followed his ministers. I followed his vice president. Um, and whether we were in campaigning in a big city or, or, or in a village with no uh, infrastructure, no route access, uh, he would say the same thing, you know, and you're promising change to people in 90 days. And so people are sort of focused on that. And, and, and that takes your attention away from the Chinese issue per se. People are basically expecting to suddenly receive more money in their pockets. They're expecting their salaries to double. They're expecting their bosses, their employers to be more lenient um, and treat, give them better conditions of service. Um, so there were a lot of issues, let's say, which were perhaps more relevant in people's everyday lives um, that were more pressing for people and that took the attention quite easily away from the China bashing. Yeah, I, it sounds like Sata was a, a shrewd politician who gave a package of slogans and policies that ultimately appealed to the voters. And like any politician, some things stick, some things can be done, some things can't be done. Um, and we can probably hash out in private why the anti-China rhetoric is the thing that sticks out in a lot of people's minds here in the U.S., but that's the subject of another pod. Because of, of your extensive fieldwork in Zambia, can you talk about how Zambia's Chinese population took the news of President Sata's death, and what did Sata mean to them? I think um, you have to bear in mind what Kennedy was mentioning earlier on. Um, actually, I don't know if it was in our private conversation or in this podcast, but that, you know, we both agree that Chinese people are not very involved in, you know, the functioning of day-to-day -day politics. You know, the average uh, Chinese migrant or even Chinese expat who's living in Zambia doesn't really follow current affairs very, very closely. Their priority is to set up their business or deliver results, uh, make sure the company is running. Um, you know, they're not really interested in, you know, who's being elected. Um, they have a very simplistic understanding of, you know, uh, the political situation, the political climate. I think to the average Chinese person in Zambia, they have a vague idea that you have pro-Chinese candidates and then perhaps more hostile or anti-Chinese candidates. And um, they knew that Sasser was more of an anti-Chinese candidate. And that really is about it. That's about as far as their understanding uh, went. Um, and that was probably enough for most of them to, to go along with their daily chores and their daily activities and just, you know, for them to inform their decisions, let's say. To, to get on with what they had to get on. Um, I think for a lot of people who, were, who have been there for a long time, um, his election uh, changed quite a lot of things for them. Part, partly because, of course, um, they were used to the country being run by the MMD. And when there's a sudden change, a radical change in government, we're talking about everybody changing from top to bottom <laughs> um, in the entire system. So it meant that a lot of people had to reestablish contact, renegotiate channels with local bureaucracy, local administration, uh, knowing also full well that the new administration, the new cadres, 
those who would replace the existing M and D um, bureaucrats would be cracking down particularly hard on the Chinese. So I think. Um, on the whole, life was made a, a bit more difficult for those who had been in the country for a while. Um, but again, I think they're used to it. I think that's also part of uh, what living in a foreign country is about. You have to weather the storm, and uh, sometimes it's temporary, sometimes it lasts a little bit longer. Um, and I think there's a lot of uncertainty now with his passing um, as to you know, who his successor will be, um, will the PF continue to govern? Will it be re-elected at the end of the mandate? Um, and more importantly, you know, what is the roadmap? What is the way forward? What are their priorities? And, um, you know, how do they want to see the country grow? And what are the conditions they're putting in place in order to help the country grow? But I think it's really important to bear in mind that, um, just as Kennedy was saying, that the average, that the po most people are living um, under the level of poverty in Zambia, many people are illiterate, which, you know, the situation is very similar um, among the Chinese. A lot of them are not necessarily illiterate in Chinese, but they don't read and write English. Um, and they will not be reading and writing the, you know, the local press. They might even have translators around them in order to ensure all the everyday interfaces with local society. So because of that isolation, they probably wouldn't know much and wouldn't be that interested either. I think that is also something quite important to, to bear in mind. Could you tease out the differences between Chinese migrants and Chinese expats? If, if my interpretation of what you said was, so the people that have been there for a while, the SATA transition was initially difficult, but if, if you're there, you got a weather storm. Would expats, if SATA was all they knew and they don't, particularly interact with Zambian politics all that much to begin with, Sata dying and incoming, uh, the, the incoming um, political questions don't really mean much to them one way or another? Well, uh, I think a, a, a simple way of seeing the difference is that migrants, um, to, to, to some extent, move voluntarily. So, I mean, and, and this is obviously debatable, but... Um, Within migrants, you obviously got different kinds or different categories of people. You've got, you know, household migration where an entire family moves out. You've got individual migration. You've got change migration. You've also got labor migration, so people who were sent, were working within sort of complex labor regimes, um, and then who were sent to work uh, on a specific project for a specific amount of time. Um, I would say the expatriate community is is a very small a marginal community of people working with um, the Chinese government, um, state-owned enterprises, and perhaps new uh, private corporations, Chinese private corporations. Um, and they are mainly different because of their, you know, well, partly because of their employer, um, a condition, living conditions, uh, working conditions um, when they're abroad. And, of course, the large majority of Chinese living in Zambia are migrants and, and not expats as such, um, even though both groups would probably continue moving quite substantially um, afterwards. An, an expat would probably shift from, you know, it could shift from uh, Zambia to Tajikistan to Mexico, but a, a migrant, depending on their networks, um, could shift, you know, perhaps not as far, but at least continue shifting around the region.
Um, I think, you know, what is at stake depends on obviously who you're speaking to, but expatriates work for, let's say, you know, companies where I think a lot of migrants, at least those who are starting their own businesses, have a lot more at stake because it's sort of their one gamble. Um, they're rolling the dice and it's their one gamble at a, a, a second life, really. Um, and so it, it, it may be more important to them in the sense that they're, they're, they've got more to lose than an expat would. A, a migrant who is living uh, off a farm or living off a small factory or uh, living off a small private clinic uh, in Zambia will be more sensitive, let's say, to the changes, the radical changes um, in the political climate of the country uh, than an expat would. He would have more layers of protection, potentially. Could you make some predictions as to the overall direction of China-Zambian relations going forward? Please note that due to the tiny size of our audience, these predictions will probably be heard by no more than a dozen people and will not haunt you for the rest of your professional career. So say as wild, uh, make an outlandish claim and don't worry about it. There will be no repercussions. <laughs> um, you, know, I'm, you know, my job is not to see into the future, but I think, um, you know, it's not really that difficult to guess that, you know, China is a... Uh, a huge, you know, powerhouse, and um, it's here to stay. Um, and I think it's not about what's going to happen in the future between China and Zambia, or China and Africa, and China and the rest of the world. China is clearly going to continue developing its uh, relationships through global markets, through international diplomacy, through multilateral engagements um, across the international stage. Um, I think the real question is, you know, how does each uh, host country, or how does the, uh, every, in, in this case, Zambia, reciprocate? What do they want out of this relationship? Uh, what can they really leverage? Um, should they be thinking about um, building a, a regional ensemble in order to maybe negotiate harder with China for certain things? So I think, you know, one thing is clear is the direction of China relations is, is I see it, you know, going from strength to strength in, in the sense that there will be more engagement on every level. There will be more financial engagement, there will be more commercial engagement, and there will be more human engagement, um, which will obviously, I think, be a natural um, complement to, to intensified commercial, economic, diplomatic engagement. Um, the question is, you know, on what terms and to whose benefit and, and how will all this unfold? I think things are a lot will, would be done a lot easier when the party in power um, knows what it's doing. I think, you know, when your house is in order, it enables you to receive guests in a way and to be a host in, 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 in a perhaps a more confident manner. Um, so I think right now the question is, and as, as, as Kennedy very well pointed out, there seems to be a lot of volatility, a lot of uncertainty about, you know, who is the boss, who will be the new sort of leading authority figure in the House, you know, the PF, will they um, remain uh, a coherent and consolidated party uh, with a, a 
clear, efficient, realistic, grounded roadmap for the country. Um, what will the opposition do? Will they be facing similar challenges? Um, and then, of course, can that party work with, you know, other parties that it wants to partners, international partners, regional partners around it? I think that uh, China's ambient relations will, <laughs> I hate to say, they'll get stronger, just as China's uh, relationship with the rest of the world will become stronger. But um, what that really means, what that implies, which direction that will go, to who benefit, what risks and externalities will be produced by that, I think, well, that's not my job, really. <laughs> it's a bit too early to tell. Hey, and and should the PUF be taking notes from the Chinese Communist Party on how to set up a, a strong centralized party that maintains control of a country? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think uh, the Chinese Communist Party has um, a lot to learn from its own experience. I think it's, I mean, to the extent that it's still really a Leninist vehicle for war, that um, I think that 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 kind of how it originated at the beginning. That's how most uh, political parties originate, but particularly the left-leaning communist parties in the first half of the 20th century. Um, yeah, I think, you know, finding, you know, being able to sum up what the Chinese Communist Party is today and its main its main pillars of functioning, I think it's uh, one question. I think the PF are, are a smart party and they're learning from how parties are built around them. At least certain people, I think, in, in power, they do uh, talk to other parties. They they do look at how things are taking place. I think China's just one model, but I think it's a very hard one to crack. I think those who are uh, observing the formation, centralization, consolidation of political parties, and I don't know how many of them are doing that in the PF, but I know that certainly some are. Um, do they look to China? Of course they do. But, you know, what can they really decipher out of that is, is up to them. And I think that that's the challenge that everyone's facing, you know. How is the Chinese Communist Party remaining so resilient? How is it resisting change? How is it innovating itself as a, a party of the 21st century? Is something that um, I think is still on the cards. That is a very excellent point. Although my assessment of the strength of Chinese Communist Party is uh, Chinese karaoke. <laughs> it's. I think that's awesome. That's great. <laughs> and I hope to write a PhD on the subject at some point. No. Uh, do you have any additional thoughts before we move on to recommendations? No, 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 particularly. Okay. All right. Well then. Recommendations. Solange, what should our listeners read or watch or do? <laughs> Go watch Interstellar. <laughs> you are like the first person. <laughs> you, you are the first person who, who's given an unqualified recommendation to watch that film. Everywhere I'm reading, they're like, it's interesting, but... But you're like, no, go watch it. I, I plan on watching it at some point. I just think, I think what's interesting is that you know, it's, it's planting problems that maybe we're not really thinking about. And it's suggesting, look, rather than saving the planet, how about we start thinking about leaving the planet? You know, and that basically really throws us off um, the way that humanity has been thinking for the last few centuries. It really requires a different kind of thinking, really a new set of parameters. Um, 
again, I think that was, was quite interesting. <laughs> well, I uh, all right. Thank you, thank you so much. I'll I'll make sure Christopher Nolan knows about your hearty recommendation, <laughs> and hopefully he gets on the pod sometime and and tells everyone to go watch when China met Africa, so he can reciprocate. Um, fantastic. Uh, before we sign off, how do people find you on the interwebs? I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this already, but I'm going to give you a chance. Well, no, they can't really find me. I don't think I don't have a blog. I don't blog. I don't. No, so I'm not a very, but they can contact me by email if they want to, but um, I don't have like a, I don't produce a reservoir of stuff on the internet. So Solange is one of the rare China-Africa academics that has a small digital signature. She's, you know, you're all up on, you know, Al Jazeera, BBC, you were in a movie, but outside of that, eh. Hard to see what you're up to. Yeah. <laughs> and she likes it that way. But shoot her an yeah. email. She's very approachable. <laughs> uh, and if Christopher Nolan is listening to this podcast, shoot her an email. Go, go. <laughs> yeah, we've never drink down the pub. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm I'm sure he would be buying. Um, I hope so. <laughs> I myself can be found on cowriesrice.blogspot.com. My Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R. Um, I usually tweet about China, Africa stuff. Um, that's about it for today's episode. We would like to thank Solange and Kennedy for joining us this evening from, where are you, in Belgium? Yes, yeah, Brussels. Brussels. Uh, one of my best friends was just in Brussels and telling me how great the food was there. Um, yeah. Oh, so when you were eating dinner, I what French fries from a truck? Uh, no, actually, I cooked some chicken soup with the vegetables and tofu. <laughs> ooh, ooh, very, very nice. Yeah. Um, and and Kennedy is, was recording from Zambia. Yeah. Lusaka. Um, from from Lusaka, where one day I hope to visit soon. Um, we'd also like to thank African Development Jobs. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher. Tune in Radio, Double Twist, and iTunes. We are also teaming up with WTND Community Radio from Macomb, Illinois, to share our podcast. And we'd also like to thank Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care. <laughs>